0: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Alison Gill, AG. And this is the second episode in the series of the book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. Last week, we replayed our introductory interview with the author, and today, we dig into chapters one and two, the introduction and the evolution of power. This series will continue with the culmination in the final episode on March 6th, where I'll bring the author back to answer subscribers' questions. The introduction begins with a simple question. Does power corrupt, or are corrupt people drawn to power? Kloss helps illustrate this question by telling the story of Batavia a spice ship that set sail from the Netherlands in 1628 to Java, part of modern-day Indonesia. The boat carried a fortune in silver that was going to be used to buy spices and other exotic riches, along with 340 passengers and crew. There was a strict hierarchy on the boat, and a few rungs down the ladder from the captain was a junior merchant named Cornelis, a former apothecary. He was down and out, not doing well with his life. Now, after the boat set sail, he planned a mutiny. He'd get the boat in isolated waters and then take over the ship and sail away and start a new life somewhere else under the name Dread Pirate Roberts. I'm kidding about the last part. But the ship hit a coral reef off the Australian coast and sank. The captain salvaged what supplies he could and took 47 people on a lifeboat and told the others, survive the best you can. I'll be back to rescue you. The survivors swam to Beacon Island, a tiny place where nothing grew and nothing lived. You could throw a baseball from one side of the island to the other, and they were there to await rescue. Cornelis assumed leadership, as he was an officer, and those strict hierarchical rules followed the survivors to the island. He quickly realized that food, water, and wine would last longer if there were fewer survivors to feed, so he began consolidating power by eliminating potential rivals. Some were falsely accused of crimes and put to death. Others were sent on suicide missions. Others were ordered to kill other people as a loyalty test. And the killings were done on his orders, but he didn't actually do any of the killing himself. The way he displayed his dominance was by dressing all fancy and putting everyone else in rags. Months later, the captain returned. And Cornelis had over a hundred people murdered by that time. And he faced some justice. He was hanged, his hands were cut off. Uh, but this episode raises the question, had Cornelis drowned in the accident or not been on the ship at all, would the massacre have been avoided or would someone else simply have risen up and taken his spot? Klaus then tells another story about six schoolboys who, in 1965, ended up marooned on Atta, a deserted island in the Tongan archipelago. The boys actually worked together to trap seabirds for food. They began making fires and cooking and surviving. They worked together to collect fresh water from trees. They made a primitive house out of palm fronds. All the tasks were shared, and there was no leader. And six months in, six months in, one of the boys slipped and broke his leg, and the other five boys rushed to make a splint. And while he couldn't walk, they took care of him until he could help with other chores again. And then after more than a year, 15 months of being stranded, An Australian named Peter Warner spotted fire markings from his fishing boat on the island and rescued the boys. Quote, two desert islands, two conflicting visions of human nature. So what accounts for the difference? Are we doomed to exploitation because of bad humans or bad hierarchies? And why does the world seem to have so many Cornelise type leaders and so few like the boys of Atta? And if you and your co-workers were stranded, how do you think it would turn out? Kloss says this book intends to answer four main questions. Do worse people get power? Does power make people worse? Why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? And how can we ensure that incorruptible people get into power and wield it justly? Brian Kloss has been studying those questions for decades and has struggled with some haunting puzzles. Are war criminals a different breed altogether, or are they just extreme versions of petty tyrants, the kinds we see all the time, like our bosses or whatever? Can people become monsters, or are they predisposed to it, or does power corrupt? Kloss starts with the old adage, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But is this true? The author gives an example of power corrupting using uh, President Rava Lamanana of Madagascar Now, this guy was born poor, but when he got his first bicycle, he started riding to nearby farms to ask for excess milk, which he turned into yogurt. Now, by the late 90s, 1990s, he was the island's dairy baron. And in 2002, he ran for president and won on his rags-to-riches story and promises that he would distribute the wealth. And at first, he did what he promised. He cracked down on corruption. He helped build infrastructure and roads. And Madagascar became one of the fastest-growing economies. But after a while... The power got to him. Four years later, in 2006, he exiled his main opponent and won reelection in a landslide. Year after year, he became more corrupt. And in 2009, a radio DJ took to the airwaves and encouraged peaceful protests. And Rava Lamanana's soldiers opened fire on them, killing dozens. It was a bloodbath. He was then toppled in a coup, and the radio DJ was put into power. So maybe power does corrupt, but sometimes that adage doesn't apply at all. What about when power attracts certain kinds of people, especially those who shouldn't be in charge of anything? And and here's where Kloss brings up the Stanford prison experiment that suggests power does corrupt. But he says, everything you think you know about that study is wrong. Now, if you aren't familiar with it, in 1971, Dr. Zimbardo placed an ad in a local newspaper, quote, male college students needed for a psychological study of prison life, $15 per day for one to two weeks, etc., etc., apply here. Zimbardo got the group together, randomly assigned nine people as guards and nine as prisoners. And the guards almost immediately began abusing the prisoners, attacking them with fire extinguishers, forcing them to sleep on concrete floors, stripping them naked, etc. And it seemed as though power did indeed corrupt them. And deprived of control, the prisoners became insular and submissive. Now, the study was supposed to go on for two weeks. But when Zimbardo's girlfriend stopped by and saw what was going on, she was so horrified, she convinced him to stop the experiment after six days. The conclusion seemed clear. There are demons in all of us, and power lets them come to the surface. But there's a catch. A few, actually. First, only some of the guards were abusive, not all of them. And a few said they were simply putting on a show because that's what they thought the experimenters wanted. And recently, unearthed audio tapes have raised questions about whether the participants were actually coached rather than just spontaneously being jerks. And in 2007... Researchers in Kentucky noticed something about the ad Zimbardo had placed, so they conducted an experiment of their own. They placed two ads in two different areas in two papers, one that was identical to the Stanford Prison Experiment ad, uh, went from $15 to $70 to adjust for inflation, and one that removed the word prison. So instead of saying a psychological study of prison life, the other ad simply said a psychological study. And what they found is really, really incredible. Those who responded to the prison ad scored significantly higher on measures of aggressiveness, authoritarianism, Machiavellianism, narcissism, social dominance, and they they scored significantly lower on empathy and altruism. Quote, just by adding the word prison, they ended up with a disproportionately sadistic batch of students, unquote. So maybe power is a magnet for bad people rather than something that transforms good people into bad people. By those standards, power doesn't corrupt, it attracts corruptible people. But then there's still another mystery. How do people so ill-suited for power get it so easily? If we are somehow drawn to giving wrong people power for the wrong reason, what is it? Well, Klaas has an example of an experiment for that too. In 2008, in Switzerland, 681 kids were shown they were told that you you're gonna have a, a ship and you're gonna go out to sea, and they were shown two photos of people and asked which one would make the best captain of your ship that's about to set sail. And the photos were actually that of the winners and runners up in recent French parliamentary elections. Now seventy one percent of the time, without any other additional information, the kids picked the winners, based purely on their looks, no other factors. When the same experiment was given to adults, They got the same result. Kloss cites other experiments, too, about how the way we choose leaders is flawed. So that adds a complication. Uh, Then we should also consider, quote, what if people in power do bad things, not because they're bad and not because they turn bad, but because they're stuck in a bad system. So we have the power makes people worse. We have the it's not power that corrupts. It's bad people that are drawn to power. We have the, we're flawed at choosing those we put into power. And we have the, it's not bad people, it's a bad system. And that leads us to what Kloss says are the two most fundamental questions about human society. Who gets power and how does it change us? And we'll start digging into that in chapter two, right after this quick break. Hey everybody, it's AG. You know what you need? You need news that's smart and funny and inspiring. You need The Final Word podcast with Frangela. America's BFS will keep you informed and energized while you hashtag resist with new podcasts out every Wednesday. Then you can get your laugh on with new episodes of Frangela's hysterical Idiot of the Week podcast, where Frangela fights stupid one dumb story at a time. Check out the final word and Idiot of the Week on MSW Media and the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network every week. And do yourself a favor and follow at Frangela Duo on all social media today. You'll be glad you did. All right, welcome back. Chapter two, The Evolution of Power. This takes us back to our last common ancestor with chimpanzees. And since we share 98.8% of our DNA with them, the study of their hierarchies helps us understand ours, right? Well, decades ago, Franz de Waal, a Dutch primatologist, noted chimps' social structures were far more complicated than previously thought. It wasn't just about being the biggest and the strongest, there were alliances that were formed, uh, they would have to curry favor with kingmakers and distribute resources. Their hierarchies were so sophisticated, he saw them as political and wrote Chimpanzee Politics in 1982. He noted that while hierarchies were always present, not all chimps wanted to reach the number one spot. Some were cool with being followers. Some were cool to be number three. Some were cool to be number two, which sounds familiar, reminds me of Lindsey Graham for some reason. Now, in the early aughts, a biologist named Catherine Pollard tried to figure out, of the 15 million or so bits of our DNA that are different and separate us from the chimps, which ones have changed the most? Which ones make us human? In 2004, she found where we differed. But we also needed to know how. Enter Michael Tomasello from Duke University, who designed a study with toddlers. In this scenario where toddlers had to work together on a task and were rewarded unevenly, The kid who got more reward would share with the other kid 80% of the time, whereas if they were just randomly handed uneven rewards, they wouldn't share. Their instinct was toward fairness. Randomly uneven allocations didn't bother them, but unfair allocations after equal effort unsettled them when they reached around three years old. Quote, when we stop tasting our pacifiers, we start to, to develop a taste for injustice. But is this uniquely human? Tomasello ran the same experiment with chimps and found that they rarely shared, no matter what, leading him to wonder if a cooperation instinct had evolved specifically in humans. So, when did we develop the innate desire to cooperate and not just dominate? Klaas says we have to go back to our hunter gatherer past for the answers. And this section is called How Our Shoulders Shaped Society. As it turned out, when we developed the ability to throw weapons and spears with speed and accuracy and distance, We changed our evolutionary course from one relying more on brute strength to one that included the importance of skill and finesse. Give a chimp a baseball, he can't throw it with much accuracy or any speed greater than 20 miles per hour. Now, the traditional link between power and size was severed. And evolutionary biologists argue that this shift is a key reason the physical size differences between males and females are narrower in humans than in any of the other great ape species. Ranged weapons flattened the hierarchies from chimp despotism to hunter-gatherer cooperation. Now, as a result, humans lived in relative equality in groups called bands of about 10, 20 people for several hundred thousand years. What we have become today is the outlier. We're the weird ones. Now, these bands weren't utopias. There were outliers. Uh, But who were they? Turns out the problem personalities were males, group leaders, shamans, proficient hunters, homicidal psychotics, or other men with political ambitions. So when did that absence of hierarchy change? How did we go from an abundance of primitive flat societies for hundreds of thousands of years to the most complex hierarchies in the history of the world? And that brings us to the section called War and Peas, P-E-A-S, on page 29 in the hardback edition. Everything changed, apparently, between 11,000 and 5,000 years ago, so recently, when we began abandoning the flat societies, the flat idea, and uh, brilliant researchers pin it down to war and agriculture. This returns us to the concept of ranged weapons and groups of warriors. It's basic math. So if you have two warring groups, one with 500 archers and one with 1,000 archers, and they fire on each other, and they each kill 30% of the opposing army... The larger army will wipe out the smaller one after just three exchanges. So as ranged weapons became more common, warfare began favoring societies with more soldiers. And when humans form larger groups, hierarchies always emerge. Around 11,000 years ago, humans changed our diets, too. We began the agricultural revolution and narrowed our diets to peas, chickpeas, lentils, flax, barley, figs, oats, etc. Farming began taking hold. And it was disastrous for our nutrition. It reduced our physical size, and it ushered in a new era of inequality. Let me explain. Quote, once there was more food to go around, people hoarded it. Those surpluses made inequality possible. They also made it possible to support a larger group of people because growing peas was scalable in a way that hunting gazelles was not. As surpluses and populations grew, societies became both more complex and more hierarchical. Unquote. And of course, that led to more conflict as groups sought to establish primacy. So was it war or peace? Most agree both played a role in our modern complex hierarchical societies. And according to Kloss, the shift happened with astonishing speed. Actually, it's according to Peter Turchin, a Russian emigre at the University of Connecticut that Kloss cites here, who says groups of tens of people in bands were around for hundreds of thousands of years. Then groups of hundreds formed farming villages around 8,000 B.C. Groups of thousands emerged as chiefdoms in 5,500 B.C., and groups of tens of thousands, known as complex chiefdoms, came in by 5,000 B.C. The first states of hundreds of thousands rose around 3,000 B.C., and by 2,500 B.C., there were macro states with millions of people. And by 500 B.C., they were in the tens of millions. Quote, Hierarchical behemoths defined by inequality and dominance. And the rest is literally history. So here we are, stuck with complex hierarchies. So we need to find out why corruptible people seek power. And to wrap up this chapter, Kloss says to do that, we need a quote statistician from World War II, the daughter of a cannibal emperor, some hyenas, and a power hungry, flamingo obsessed president of a homeowners association in Arizona. I love this book. I love this author. Join us next week for the next couple of chapters to find out what he means. For other fun stuff, check out my discussion with Lincoln's Bible about disinformation and messaging on the new Mueller she wrote out today. And Dana and I'll be back tomorrow morning on the Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.